Sometimes a child to be is identified by a birthmark. Sometimes a child will start having remarkable dreams, and that will identify a potential shaman. Sometimes the shaman will, as a young person, go into an illness and will recover from a remarkable illness, and that will be the mark that this person is supposed to be a shaman. So there are all sorts of different ways that shamans are identified, but the crucial way is that is the community that gives the accept or reject sign to somebody who is slated to become a shaman. Now, also, notice that the shaman is able to come up with information that's not available to other members of the tribe. Otherwise, the tribe wouldn't need shamans. They have information about healing. They have information about the future. They have information about tribal enemies. They have information about predicting the weather, information about where to find game. So there's all sorts of practical ways that uh, shamans can help out the community once they've gone through the training, once they've become identified. Enjoy the high as long as it's a compliment to life and not your life, you know? High right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, welcome back to this week's Grimeric Show. We're going to be chatting with Don Oscar Miro Casada a little later. Uh, about some Peruvian shamanism and his personal healing journey. And it's actually, it gets, gets real personal and real cool. It's a real good chat. We got some good feedback from the live audience on that one. Uh, but first, my elitist scumbag friend, Graham Dunlop. How's it going this week, man? Hey, buddy. I'm not too, too bad. After setting up the trampoline. Setting up a tramp. Trampoline break. Hitting the tramp. Yeah. That was good. Some motorcycle riding. Got my motorbike. Yeah, I'm not going to partake in that, buddy. Stoked about that. Motorbiking or trampolining? Motorbiking. You're down for trampolining, though? I don't know. Is that for adults or just kids, that one? I was jumping on it. Yeah, I guess it's okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll do a little tramping. There you go. At least you're not a total wet blanket. I thought you were all in on everything. I can do flips and shit. Hike running and fucking ball hockey. Hike running, trail running. And Sauning and sweat lodging and fucking yeah, you name it. I'm an adventure. No motorbike is an adventure. Yeah, I, I'm afraid I might just get that taste of freedom and want to do it more and more. And I had a couple of bad experiences on a dirt bike when I was like nine or ten. Yeah, yeah. Dirt bikes are a bitch, man. I don't know. So uh, yeah, uh, welcome a few new countries to the hegemony. You got new countries. I got new countries. We got we got new countries. We got new countries. Which ones? We have Nepal. Oh, I don't think we've mentioned them before. No, we haven't. We haven't mentioned any of the ones I mentioned. We've been over this. Welcome to the monks. El Salvador. Sounds like a person. Papua New Guinea. Sounds like a papa. Moldova. We might have mentioned that one before. Yeah, maybe. And Malta. Oh, uh, hmm. I guess not a country. Graham's geography. <laughs> Grammography. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks for listening. 
Yeah, welcome and uh, send us some feedback. Hope give you stick us, around and tell give, a friend. Give us a rating. It'd be good to have a. It'd be good to have a review in the Papua New Guinea iTunes store. Yeah, is there actually, such I think thing? that was YouTube. No, there's probably no such thing. Maybe, probably not. Yeah, well, as long as we're mentioning reviews, leave us a review. Uh, Grandamerica.chs iTunes or wherever else you're listening, go ahead and leave a review. Uh, we appreciate that, and uh, it helps us out. Makes us feel good. Helps us trudge on for another day. Yeah, it actually does. It does help. <laughs> it helps emotionally, and yeah. it helps like algorithmically. Algorithmically, that might be a word. I won't contest it. It is now. It is now. Yeah. We need a book, Great American Dictionary. Yeah. Psilocybus, I don't think was a word before America. Um. So yeah, did you see the black smoke ring thing on the website? My mom's seen that shit. I know those are good shots, man. Good picks. Good picks. Me, mummy. Yeah. Yeah, well, I put it up on uh, Reddit, and a few people explained it away. Oh, did they? Yeah, well, there's some YouTube videos of people making them. Same, same thing I said, or? With, like, gunpowder and a ring. Really? Yeah. Why would they do that? I don't know. Who knows? Why do people... I could see it also being, like, off the smokestack or something. No. Like a big backfire. Yeah, they said backfire could be a cause of it. But, yeah, it could be it... a trebuchet, too. Wasn't that what one the of the... What the fuck's a trebuchet? It's a medieval castle siege machine. It wasn't that. Pretty safe was to say. Was there a medieval it? fest in your mom's town? In Grunthal, Manitoba. Grunthal. Sounds like a medieval a, town. They have a big medieval enthusiast population, <laughs> big enough for a festival. <laughs> I think there's like fucking a couple hundred people that live there. It's like scattered acreages, I'm pretty sure. But I'm not 100%. I've never been there. Huh. Sounds like a place you'd have a medieval festival. Maybe that's just it. They're Maybe. testing trebuchets. I don't get how the trebuchet would do it cause a smoke. It's like saying though, fucking trebuchet. <laughs> well, because haven't you seen those work? They're awesome. No, I haven't. Is there anything like that fucking trailer full of tar that roofers use when they're flat roofing? No, I don't think so. No, no. That's what I so think maybe, of when I. Think so maybe of. that's why then, when they throw the flaming whatever it is, it creates a smoke ring. Who does the trebuchet? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we're, you're stuck on the medieval festival theory. That's probably least likely than a UFO. Less uh, likely? Yeah, less likely. No, there was another uh, cause of the smoke ring, too. And I think it was just a... Uh, fuck, I can't remember now. Hmm. Explosion or something like that. Implosion? Explosion? Yeah. Anyways, I linked to a cool article from Open Minds on our website on that that explained away this one that was seen in uh, the UK. It looked very similar to the one your mom saw. Yeah, grandamerica.ca slash ring is the URL to check it out. Uh, it was our most popular post and all. Fucking nothing took off from between Reddit and uh, I think the Grayling Report linked to it a couple other places. And Boom. Must have been because it was your mom. Yeah. Thanks, mommy. Hi, mom. <laughs> At least your mom listens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thinks we're cool, too. Anyway. All right, Darren tried to catch me again. It's time for the Graham's Profound UFO Quote of the Week. So I tried to pick one from Peru to, you know, to suit our episode with Oscar. Uh, but I found one close enough, or at least sort of in that general direction. <laughs> close enough. Tell that to Oscar. Yeah, exactly. So I saw something in the sky that I didn't know what it was over Highway 2 about 1,500 feet 
a large lighted ball about six feet in diameter. It was going towards the beach very slowly. I was in the parking lot of the Hilton when they called me from the police department. They told me to go to the beach because a great many people were watching this object. When I got there, the object was already hovering over the water about two or three miles off the beach. There were about 500 people watching. There are about four public housing areas right there, and all of the people from the housing areas were there. I saw one light coming down, but when I got to the beach, I noticed there were two objects in the water, not together, but a mile away from each other. They were hovering over the water, right about at the water level. Because of the distance, I couldn't tell if it was a few feet over the water or if they were actually touching the water. The first object stayed about an hour, but the second one lasted at least four hours. People came out of their houses to see the view, and people came in cars, parked on the side of the street, and went to the beach to see what was happening. I stayed until midnight, mostly keeping an eye on the group so there wouldn't be any problems. It was pretty high, like an orange-yellow light. I don't know exactly the size. As it came down, it got larger. It was pretty good-sized. He likes good to say size. The people got many, many phone calls all night. Oh, the police got many, many phone calls all night. We called the Coast Guard, but they didn't come. They said it wasn't an emergency. I think they were mysterious objects. I was impressed by what I saw. There were many other officers who saw this. That was... Oh, I'm not going to be able to pronounce this. Mayaguez? 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 The police lieutenant... Oh, that must be a town. The police lieutenant Cesar Gracia. Cesar Gracia. Cesar Gracia. In 1977, in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico, on witnessing two large glowing UFOs enter and emerge from the ocean. That's a hell of a quote, buddy. Yeah, thanks, man. outlasted the jingle. (laughs) Yeah, that could be a record. That is a record. Well done. Thanks, man. Good one, eh? Good one, eh? That was just Venus. Probably. Yeah, just a planet. Swamp gas. Yeah, just 500 people watching just a normal, natural... Swamp gas. Natural object, yeah. You don't have to go with swamp gas. So uh, we should also mention the Money Bomb. Hit up the Money Bomb. I think we're only at about 92 bucks uh, with two weeks left. So it looks like, once again, we're going to barely roll over 100 bucks. So the Money Bomb is going to cost us in a way? Probably after the PayPal uh, <laughs> PayPal fees, it'll probably we'll make 10 bucks or we'll lose 10 bucks. Or it's going to be somewhere in the making $10 and losing $10 range. So the, so the month of the lost episodes will cost us quite a bit of money when it's all said it's and done. expensive month, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, if you know, give us a little value for value. If you can find, uh, if you can afford it, go ahead and hit the donate button or the subscribe button and get yourself a Grand America email address and help us offset our own stupidity. Do you want to explain a little bit about that? Not the stupidity, but about the money bomb? Uh, well, you can uh, just head over to grandamerica.ca slash money bomb and get all the deets there. There's some no uh, donation necessary um, Entry entries. And, yeah, it's a chance to win some cash. Yeah. Not win some cash, get some cash. Get some cash, yeah. So we'll be giving that away this month. Hopefully. Hopefully. Well, we'll, we'll, I mean, there's, yeah, we will be. We'll get. Yeah, ourselves. our subscribers will put us over that. It's just, yeah. Hopefully next month we'll get what we want out of that. About 50-50. That's what yeah. we call the 50-50 money bomb. Yeah. So far it's in about 95. 95-5. 
95.5. 95 to the listener? Can we call it a 1090? Yeah. Can we call it a 1090 so it's like a mullet? What does that have to do with being a mullet? 1090. 1090. Really? Yeah. 10% on your hair on top. 90% really? of the back. Yeah. Is that a real thing? Or did you, you never just heard make of it up? 1090? No, I didn't no. make that up. I wish I could take credit for that genius. You weren't I'll even... Pro- a- I'll probably never say anything that profound. You weren't even around when mullets were there, were you? Were Buddy, you? I had a mullet for like a year and did a half. Did you really? Oh, yeah. It was fucking a thing of beauty. How old are you? Uh, I think I had it when I was with Lisa. No. Probably right before I met you. Really? Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Did you do it on purpose? Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. I rocked it. I haven't had one since 1991. I remember a few years ago, I had a mohawk for a while too, like a year. Yeah, year of the mohawk. That. I shaved my head fully once, like not to the skin, but like number one, number two level. Number yeah. one? Yeah. That doesn't count on you. I was in like 90, 94 kind of thing. Bick that shit and then go yeah. in the sun on a hot day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got any, uh, any spam in the bag? Uh, a little bit. Got some feedback. Well, one I've been meaning to... Uh, to say from No Miss Art Dome. This goes way, a ways back, but he says, <laughs> <"Say spam." laughs> You don't say ham, you say spam. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help but sing the jingle a little bit. Can people hear the jingle? Yeah. Or do you have to paste it in later? Well, now they know our secret. <laughs> so you guys have a fantastic show, he says. I, I look forward to... I now look forward to each new show. Johnny Carson used to say, you're only as good as your last one. I wonder what that means. Well, so we're good right now. I hope so, yeah. Yeah, but that's a good point, though. Yeah. Well, that's what makes people, that's what separates the men from the boys. I knew you were going to say that. So I got another uh, little thing here, too. Another little Uh, thing here. That's what she said. Um, I don't know why I like this one, but she says, I, I don't know if it's a she actually, it's a baby duck. And at Gramerica, this must be one of your twits, Twitters. Twits. I love your show. It's like eating a peach. I think, I don't know if I want to eat this. I bite then wonder why the fuck I hesitated. <laughs> I know what you mean about fruit. It can be so unreliable, but the Gramerica show is not unreliable. Whereas it was our last time. show and they're all good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I know what you mean about a peach. I gotta, eat, I gotta try that again. I Peaches peach are fucking delicious. Man. Yeah. I got some upstairs right now. Really? Yeah, you can't have one though. Yeah, I know. So uh, I don't want do you, you hesitate on my peaches. You want to uh, mention some feedback we got about our audio or something? Or? No, well, we got that one email from the local. Oh right. About Alberta Stonehenge. Yeah, I don't know how we never that. heard of all this shit. Right? People are always telling us about shit. That's. <laughs> Not too far. No, no, no. That, well, it's not really an Alberta Stonehenge, is it? Is that what he's? Yeah, man. Well, I don't know. It sure looked like it in the aerial aerial photography. Well, did you did you know I've been to that one, right? Uh-oh. So, so he's talking about an old medicine wheel. Uh, should be like five thousand years old or something like that. It's quite ancient, right? So, southern Alberta apparently has a few of these. And do you remember way way back in that episode? before remember do you remember i read about it as i was going with my friend to find it that medicine wheel well this is a different one do you remember no you you must have remembered i told you i was going to search for this thing okay i remember okay you're just saying that now (laughs) anyways it was fucking cold and windy up on top of that hill it was just ridiculous when did you go march why would you go in march that's winter still in alberta 
because my friends are going and I wanted to go along. Well, now you've tainted the experience. That was when I was making drum, uh, drum, uh, t- making hides into drums and stuff. Do you remember when I went there? I think <laughs> making that was hides into drums. Arrest yeah. my case. <laughs> well, I want to go check that out anyway. We should. Uh... Oh. He mentioned something about another one too. I got to look into it a little. Yeah, bit. that was Brent. Brent from Calgary, I think. Yeah, yeah, he's a local dude. Local boy. Hey man, thanks for the feedback. Yeah, he he gave us some good feedback too. I really appreciate it. I, I don't know why I can't find it right now for some reason. Anyways, I sent him some pictures of those. I got to get some directions because it's kind of out of the way. It's kind of hard to find. Just get the long and the lat, man. Put it in the GPS. Yeah. I wonder if we get it off Can Google you do Earth. That? Why not? Maybe. Hmm. Spend the time finding it on Google Earth, and then just whew, we're there. Take yeah. the motorbike. I kind of like driving around looking back. for it. I'd rather drive around looking for it. It's more yeah. of an adventure. I don't want to sit in my computer and figure it all out first. You can go in the back of the bike. I don't use GPS. I just I, I intuitively know where stuff is. No, you don't. <laughs> you absolutely do not. So, uh, yes, thanks for the the uh, input and the ideas because I want to go check out that other place. And we still have to go to the Big Rock, too. That's right. And the newsletter is coming. The newsletter is coming. RPJ gave us some new fresh artwork and Justin's working hard at it. So big thanks to him. Um, hopefully we'll launch that. Well, I guess we're going to be taking a week off. It'll be in September sometime. Hopefully we'll have it out before Paradigm. Uh, Symposium, of course, that's coming up as well. We're getting ready to head out to that. And yeah, that'll be, that should be a good time. Yeah, good it's speakers. great. Speakers will meet up with a couple guests. So that's Paradigm Symposium 2014. I'll have a link in the show notes for that. Yep, again, uh, this is another Lost Tape, so big thanks oh, to right. Jorge Roar. Our uh, knight in shining armor came through and helped us out again. Uh, well, one time, but this is still, I think, is this the last it one? It is kind of again, because, yeah. you know. Is this the last every one? Every time we, we uh, what do you want to say it? Re- in, re- uh, revive or reincarnate this episode, it feels like we were helped again. Yeah, this is the last of the lost tapes. Is it? Yeah. We didn't get the one. We lost the one. Yeah. Because we didn't live broadcast it. That whole convoluted tale. But anyway, yeah, this is the last of the mixtapes. Hopefully that won't uh, won't happen again. But big thanks to Jorge Roar for, for those last five episodes. Yeah. And get ready for the chat with Oscar. Oscar. Don. Don Oscar Miro. Casada. 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 Yeah, that's good. Don Oscar yeah. Miro Casada. All right, guys, enjoy the interview with uh, with Oscar.
Okay, guys, welcome back to Grimerica. Tonight, uh, we're going to be talking a little Peruvian shamanism um, with Oscar Miro Casada, I believe. Um, his book, Lessons in Courage, uh, was a good one. And uh, But first, as always, how's it going tonight, Graham? Good, buddy. I'm excited about this one, as usual. But yeah, we've, uh, we're sticking on that little healing trend that we've been on lately. And as you mentioned, yeah, we've got Don Osco Mira Casada. I'm going to pronounce a bunch of things wrong here, so I'm pretty sure he'll have to uh, correct this once he gets on here. But uh, I just finished reading his book. It was fantastic. A quick read, a good read. It was uh, Lessons in Courage, Peruvian Shamanic Wisdom for Everyday Life. And, uh, and Oscar's the, he originated the Pachacuta Mesa tradition of the cross-cultural shamanism. Now, he's also the visionary founder of the Heart of the Healer, the Thoth Foundation. And uh, he's respected, jeez, uh, oh, I'm going to butcher this one, Kamaska Curendo and something else, adept of Peru. He's been guiding cross-cultural ethno-spiritual apprenticeship expeditions to sacred sites since 1986, especially in Peru and Bolivia. So he's also a popular faculty member at numerous U.S. colleges and universities, and his works and programs have been featured on CNN, A&E, Discovery Channel, etc. So we are just happy to have you on the show, Oscar. Welcome to America. Well, thank you so much, Darren and Graham, and to all of you that are on the cyberspace dimensions that uh, support our dialogue. Uh, looking forward to uh, plunging, taking a plunge in the Akasha, in the etheric field that lies behind all phenomenal expressions of life. So this is a good shamanic venue for uh, uh, for offering the good medicine. Like you say, you're on a healing trend. Uh, I'm very pleased to hear that. I hope I can add some different perspectives on what you understand healing to be, folks. Yes, it sounds. Uh, it sounds like this is going to be a deep plunge uh, for sure here. <laughs> and that'd be uh, a better way to say that. And I'm sure that uh, <laughs> I'm sure with with the amount of experience you have and the varieties of of healing modalities, and and uh, I'm sure you're going to be able to to really teach us something here and shed some light on some things that we haven't really talked about uh, mainly the some of the shamanic stuff which we we've, we've got into a little bit uh some of our first episodes we had um what was his name again we talked quite a bit about Shan uh, Stanley Krippner Stanley Krippner yeah he's oh he was... he's a very good friend i love stanley <laughs> i had a feeling you you'd you'd know him yeah so uh i don't even know where to start your book was really good um i am fascinated by quite a few quite a few parts of it especially the way you mix uh, mix up traditions in a non-dogmatic way. Like I noticed some, some parallels with, uh, you know, like the Native American culture and, um, and the, also like Zen Buddhism and a little bit of New Age stuff. So maybe start with the, the genesis of your book, Lessons in Courage. Uh, certainly. Uh, Lessons in Courage is um, a narrative of uh, certain pivotal moments in uh, my experience as a passerby on this good earth. <laughs> and it is uh, intended to uh, present a an understanding of shamanism as an 
evolutionary impulse as something that resides within the soul of all sentient beings and that it's not an exotic uh, foreign uh, experience at all that it is a universal principle that uh, people from all walks of life from the beginning of time especially on planet earth have been engaged in its practice. It is, contrary to popular belief, the, the oldest living profession <laughs> uh, has a good competitor with that of I've heard otherwise. concubines, yeah, yeah. <laughs> secret concubines. <laughs> Yet, uh, what, what originated uh, the desire to put into word um, a, a lineage that... Uh, primarily is transmitted orally, is the number of people that have been touched by what you pronounce very well, as a matter of fact, the Pachakuti Mesa tradition of cross-cultural shamanism. It's a mouthful, yet Pachakuti uh, in Quechua, which is the native dialect of the Inca, um, means world reversal or cosmic transformation. Pacha world, Kuti reversal. Mm. And so the the practice of the Pachacuti Mesa shamanic path involves uh, managing change, managing transformation within a, within a ceremonial context. And it involves setting up an altar with various shamanic artifacts, power items, talismans, totems, things of that nature that are imbued with particular virtues, particular, uh, you know, Spirit powers, and by working with these in an artful manner, you can co-create a condition that is supportive of the restoration of wholeness where separation has been experienced, and the progressive uh, coming back together, you know, recovering a relationship with a living soul, and that's what shamanism basically is. Now. The experiences, as you've read the book that I uh, uh, articulate in them, are experiences that a lot of people on this good earth can relate to because they come from a place of, um, uh, of having been born in a quite dysfunctional family. And it shows that even in the midst of great challenges, uh, there are opportunities, rites of passage, moments where you can... Uh, if you position yourself more surrendered to what's happening rather than trying to control the events of what's occurring, breakthroughs can occur. Mm. So breakdowns usually can become breakthroughs, to use a common cliche. Mm. And so, you know, I've used some of these concepts that you may uh, associate with New Age principles, but they are notions that have existed since time immemorial and part of the perennial wisdoms of the planet. So in a way, it's uh, my attempt to share with a broader audience uh, how to make a shamanic uh, awakening out of pain and suffering, really. <laughs> I, I do like That's the how, bottom line. I, I do like how it's kind of a, it's a manual, really, that you can refer to and follow uh, the instructions on on just what you said, right? How to how to create your own, um, you know, Pachacuti Mesa and, and do the rituals and <clears throat> how you can line things up and how you become uh, present, I guess, and and practice mindfulness. So I uh, 
I love that part of it, how I can go back here now and look and follow it. Correct. The, and you, you really have um, captured the essence of the book. I can tell from the way you've, you've described it. Um, it's, there are five chapters that correspond to the five directions uh, or medicine embodiments of the altar ground known as the Pachakuti Mesa. And they, uh, the heading of the chapters are trusting soul, honoring spirit, opening heart, transforming mind, and healing body. T-H-O-T-H. Thoth, the ibis-headed scribe of the Egyptian pantheon, <laughs> the thrice great Hermes Trismegistus. And those five directions which do involve working with body, heart, spirit, mind, and soul, uh, because all shamanic practices has to be inclusive of these different dimensions of our human experience, in the chapters of the book, start off with a, 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 you know, an example of real life that's happening right here and now that creates disharmony, and then a teaching from my own life experience using parallels of what I went through and how I transformed through them into being a medicine person. And then at the end of each chapter, there are hands-on practices that can be uh, followed by any person from any walk of life that has an inkling for ceremony and ritual is a valuable thing to do. And, um, it's 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 good medicine for the world. I may say so. I had the great honor of working collaborating with my co-author, Dr. Bonnie Glass Coffin, who's in the anthro cultural anthropology department at Utah State University, and she happens to be the world's foremost expert on uh, female folk healers of Peru. Hmm. So we had a wonderful time. I've known her for a while. She's a, an adept at the Pachacuti Mesa as well. Well, and uh, a very close collaborator in many of the work we do through the Heart of the Healer Foundation. And uh, yes, she is of equal um, intimacy in my life, shamanically speaking, as good old Stanley is that you mentioned at the opening. Is it still we have a great uh, family? Is a female shaman still? Is it still shaman? Like, is that is that the term, or is it medicine woman, or? Well, in in Peru, uh, the the word shaman really is uh, Tungusic. It's from Siberia, Samang, S A M A N, and um, it, it literally refers to the Siberian shamanic uh, tradition that involves uh, deep states of trance and uh, uh, altered uh, states of consciousness to contact spirits and in many cases allow the spirits to be uh, incorporated and embodied <laughs> and so you know it's a it's a way it, it's it's a path of transcendence mm. as Merchan Eliade calls it it's you know the, a technology of the sacred and uh, and I see more um, the Peruvian approach to shamanism um, a technology of the heart, uh, rather than, because really curanderismo, as it's called in Peru, um, 
is uh, literally translates into uh, the act of healing. Curanderismo. To curar is to cure or to make better, and ismo is the act of it. So the act of healing, and all acts of healing to be effective, at least in my experience, uh, must be understood as a labor of love, must come from a place of, of deep empathy, compassion, and, uh, and love, and a desire to accept the person in front of you or the community in front of you, not as ill, not as flawed, perfect, exactly the way they are, even in the midst of pain, suffering, and disease, and to embrace that disease and allow it to be held so that it will naturally shapeshift, run its course, and change form. And so in that sense, the healing, folk healing of Peru is, um, doesn't necessarily involve contacting spirits and calling on spirits. It's more of a, a ritual honoring of our human uh, divinity. I hope I'm making some sense here. Yeah, I actually, I love to way, hear the way you describe that um, because, you know, you put so much emphasis on, on actually having to, you know, have the empathy and the compassion and it has to, you have to truly believe it. And when we talk to uh, people like Amika Swami, these quantum physicists, they're talking about how we, we're shaping our own realities every second of the day and everything's only possibilities. But he was talking the same, kind of the same thing, how, you know, just thinking something doesn't affect your reality. It takes that emotion. It's like that emotional, emotions have more, uh, I don't know, more of a ripple effect, I suppose, and whatever it is we're in. I understand perfectly and agree wholeheartedly. It's all about the heart. Nothing like feeling. With feeling, we connect. And with thought, we, uh, we study. And both are, are needed, uh, just as long as they're kept in balance, you know? So for, for people, you know, people are skeptical sometimes of the of this type of shamanic healing along with all other alternative uh, types of healing. So, you know, could you tell us a couple of stories of, uh, of some of the healing that you've uh, experienced just to, to sort of, uh, you know, what the whistle of the people that may be just a little bit uh, unbelieving. Well, I'm going to give you i I'm going to share a story with you that is also articulated in the book that is going to make the listeners even more incredulous of, of this. So I don't know if I'm going, I, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not sharing this to convince others that uh, these non-ordinary uh, approaches to healing uh, uh, truly uh, exist. On the contrary, I'm right. going to just speak from my experience. Um, at age 10, uh, I was taken from Lima, which is in the coast of Peru, up to Chosica by my family because I had severe asthma that uh, resulted in me having to have IV drips, intravenous drips of dexamethasone, which is, you know, basically cortisone, steroids, 
to be able to even open up the alveoli of my lungs to breathe. And I was very frail and, and, and basically a walking zombie. I could not run. I could not go outside. And, that, and I was in that condition for almost three years. And I was slowly slipping away. And uh, a lot of my immune uh, system was compromised as well because of the massive doses of, of cortisone that were given in those days. You know, I've got a few years on me. And so my father and, and mother decided to move me to the altitude where there's dry air and not the humidity on the coast and it's less polluted. And I was able to, as a matter of fact, breathe better up there. Yet still was having this, these episodes of hypoxia, of, of asphyxiation. And in one of those, I um, remember myself um, actually dying, actually uh, slipping away between worlds and eventually sinking into my bed and everything becoming dark around me and my pulse and my heart stopping and uh, I knew that I was moving into the realm of uh, of the netherworld and I hear this at first imperceptible speaking out of my name that grew progressively louder and louder and all of a sudden I came back into my body and in front of me there were these three luminous wizened old beings, the typical Merlin types that you could imagine and they were wearing these shimmering white robes of light and they had long wispy gray hair and long beards and they were about seven feet tall and they moved with the most exquisite grace and they left traces of light wherever they moved their hands and they were standing in my room in the dark there one to my left one to my right and one in the, in the front of my of my bed and they began to communicate telepathically with me and it's a long story but you've read this in the book yeah the one, the one to my left basically uh, arched himself toward me and placed his lips on my chest and began a classic uh, uh, tupa, which we call in, in, in Spanish in the shamanic tradition of curanderismo, it's a suction, an extraction by suction. And it was this interminable uh, aspiration and I could feel all the disease, all of the darkness, all of the pain and, and constriction that I had felt for so many years in that weakened body just be sucked out of me. And he took this humongous breath and then released it into the above. And it just in a spiral fashion vaporized into this nothingness. And from that moment on, I never had asthma again. And so you may not call this a classic shamanic intervention by a three-dimensional human uh, maestro or maestra or mm -hmm. adept at the arts, yet that's the level of, uh, of uh, non-ordinary healing that we're talking about is, 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 does exist 
around this planet. And it's a matter of uh, various variables, conditions, and circumstances converging at a certain uh, moment in time-space in which the portal is opened between our consensus reality and that more transcendent uh, ultimate ground of being in which everything is possible. And uh, these wormholes happen all over the, all of the time, as you well know from having interviewed many of your guests. They are bridges between worlds. And, and visitors uh, of various dimensional um, um, intelligence are able to make themselves present in service to those that yet have to evolve into the light themselves. My experience is that everything that we consider um, of an elevated spiritual nature, angels, archangels, the kingdoms, the principalities, the Elohim, all of our star relatives, our alien types, all of our demonic relations are really ourselves in the future. And we're just catching up to being that more refined state of consciousness that we see embodied in them. In a way, it's, you know, the universe is us. That's my own personal understanding of what's going down with these healing modalities. That's funny. We're convinced that the igloo actually exists on the fringes of some sort of a wormhole because when we're in here trying to get prepped for our, our shows, it seems like the time just disappears. <laughs> I'm sure you guys uh, also have some allies that you stay in close contact with uh, <laughs> that are know how to uh, open and close the alchemical furnace. <laughs> I um, I I like the way you're, you're describing how you you were kind of healed of your asthma because I mean I'm actually in the middle uh, of reading a book, uh, Black Smoke, uh, by Margaret DeWise, where she's she's talking about her. Um, visiting doing ayahuasca healing for her for her breast cancer and it was she described the same thing where the shaman was like sucking it out and she could visualize this black smoke coming out of her chest yes uh well ayahuasca that's a whole other uh medicine of course we we in peru were very um uh, we approach the use of our plant relatives in a very sacrosanct manner. We, you know, we enter into a deep relationship of communion with them and consecration of their presence in our life. And uh, it's it, it is not just to induce an altered state of consciousness. It's truly to enter into what we call a compacto. Um, an allegiance, you know, and you take an oath in a way that uh, it's between you and the plant uh, that you will be a, a purified instrument of its magic and medicine in the world. And it requires a, a long period of, of initiation and apprenticeship in these arts to, to do it properly. 
that said, there's a dime a dozen of a lot of people offering these experiences in Peru and elsewhere and all over the world uh, out of the traditional, you know, removed from the traditional context. And, you know, I have no, nothing against that except that um, there's no community afterward. People have these experiences and then are, go back yeah. into the same dysfunctional environment that they're in. Uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, <laughs> I feel you, we have to, uh, always keep this in the context of a sacred community for it to really be honored in a good way. Um, yeah, we've heard that before, actually, that, mm -hmm. uh, that that's a concern of some. That was probably from, mm -hmm. from uh, what's his name again? Stanley? Stanley? Yeah, yeah. So, and what what is the one that you describe in your book? San Pedro or something like that? Is that yeah, yeah. It's, uh, San Pedro is what we use in the northern coastal and, and uh, central highland areas of Peru. Okay. And it's, it's a mescaline-based cactus. Um, okay. You've heard of the, you know, the, uh, the four winds. It's this ribbed cactus that is of the family of the peyote, and uh, its name is Tricucerios peruvianis or Tricucerios pachanoi, its botanical name, and its, its alkaloid is mescaline, and it induces uh, deep uh, vision and heightened sensitivity and expanded intuitive capacities and also allows um, the soul of Pachamama, of Mother Earth, to reveal herself in an extraordinary manner. And we use these on Tuesday and Friday nights. That's usually when the ceremonies take place in the rural communities and indigenous um, circles that uh, I've been privileged to do my apprenticeship in. Mm -hmm. And it's, they start, the ceremonies can start anytime from 8 or 9 or 10 in the evening, and they last until the first ray of dawning. And there are various uh, phases or steps to the ceremony that involve very elaborate rituals of purification, of cleansing, of raising, of extraction, and of uh, flowering or blossoming with a lot of perfumes and, and songs and chants and smoke and tobacco and imbibing through the nose this, you know, vile tobacco alcohol concoction <laughs> that uh, yet all of that is done within the context of a deep spiritual tradition, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so, uh, it's not the alkaloid of the plant; it is the soul of the plant that we sing our songs to, that we call forth for assistance. And it's a very different experience because it, it's not about getting high, right? It's about expanding one's awareness of the multiplicity of shamanic allies that there are uh, surrounding you in, in, in nature as well as within yourself. And it's a remarkable experience. Everybody imbibes, even the children that come. 
everybody drinks the uh, the brew and uh, participates in the ceremony. And I, you know, I, I do have uh, training. Uh, academic training in, in clinical psychology and I went to Western to American universities and have studied uh, you know healing modalities that are uh, of the mind and I have found that in these San Pedro ceremonies conditions that usually would take years to resolve through Western psychotherapeutic means can be resolved in a matter of three or four San Pedro sessions uh, and and permanently, especially uh, addictions. Uh, ayahuasca is also very effective in the treatment of uh, heroin and uh, and crack addiction and things of that mm -hmm, nature. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, so there, there are some commonalities between the two then, ayahuasca and San Pedro and, and the whole ritual around it. It sounds similar. Uh, the San Pedro ritual is much, much more elaborate than okay. the ayahuasca ritual. Okay. Yeah, the yeah. San Pedro ritual involves a lot of tools and instruments and, uh, and shamanic artifacts that are manipulated. And the songs are different, you know, the mm -hmm. San Pedro songs are Tarjos, the Icaros are the, the ayahuasca songs. And the ayahuasquero usually it doesn't use an altar, just the rattle and some tobacco and, right. you know, right, right. Well, while in the San Pedro, you use every bell and whistle possible. You have a much more theatrical experience, you know. Huh. So, so speaking of, of addiction, I was going to ask you about uh, advice for people that may have substance abuse uh, challenges. Mm -hmm. Well, what type of advice? I mean, well, let's. I mean, you, you talk about it in your book a little bit, but uh, besides going down and experiencing a San Pedro thing, I mean, is there any other um, experiences you have or, or advice for people at all? Well, in my own personal uh, life, I uh, I would say that I never experienced. Uh, classic addiction in which there is a physical dependency and a physical reliance on any alcohol or, or, or substance. Uh -huh. Yet I was, uh, because of my own inner demons and dragons and shadows that I was not addressing, I, you know, I tried to numb myself. So I found refuge in substances and uh, yet never felt dependent. It's not like I had to have you know, yeah. a drink or a snort of cocaine or anything like that uh, to to wake up in the morning and go to work, you know. So uh, yet I did, uh, you know, escape. I used it in an escapism right, right. manner. And so it's a little different than addiction. The, the term addiction, when we're talking about heroin or or other substances that are physiologically uh, really at the genetic level start to make themselves needed. Um, there you do, I would, the only treatment that I know of is isolating the person um, for the period of time that's necessary and purifying the body by any means possible. I find sweat, sweats, you know, like the Inipi ceremony, 
very effective and and uh, fasting and also cleansing with a number of herbs and and budgas, which are substances that make you purge, make you regurgitate, very effective. So in that sense, um, for that severe level of addiction, I would recommend leaving the country and going somewhere where there are specialists that uh, can help you go through a purification uh, and then engage in the use of one of our plant relatives to reframe your relationship to the substance, you know. Hmm. Yet um, when it comes to just uh, uh, a daily dependence on a substance to alter your consciousness uh, recreationally, um, what can I say? Uh, uh, it's part of our human nature to want to uh, seek uh, diverse expressions of of awareness, um, and uh, you know, being an exercise uh, a gym rat, or uh, uh, you know, an exercise buff, or you know, a a, uh, a gastronomic expert, or Anything that you put a lot of passion into it gets you high. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's that's well put. Yeah, I like that. You too. know, so in 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 a way, I, I would say enjoy the high as long as it's a compliment to life and not your life. You know, I'm high right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, that's good. And you're complimenting our shamanic journey here, Darren. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so I, I guess uh, there's, there's a lot of other questions I have here. I, I was fascinated by your, I mean, there's so many journeys that you, you had there, but I wanted to talk about the, the was it Rama, R-A-M-A, that... Uh, the Rama mission. The Rama yeah, mission, yeah. yeah. Well, the Rama mission is a very interesting contactee group that I... Uh, Early on, uh, during the most difficult time in my own, uh, uh, you know, meltdown, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I encountered very serendipitously uh, through a lot of synchronicities. And um, the Rama mission in Peru was founded by Sixto Paz Wells. He was a young man that at 18 years old began to receive these psychographic uh, communications where he, his arm would start twitching like mad and he had to pick up a pen and would go into this automatic trance writing. And he started to write about these elder guides that had a, uh, a satellite base in Ganymede that they had originally come from the star system Orion. And in Jupiter's largest moon, Ganymede, there was this uh, artificial domed city. Uh, and they were, they had been, they had come to our planetary system on a mission, not only to save their own uh, civilization, because one of the, I believe it was Rigel, uh, had just gotten too large, and therefore their planet was not able to withstand the heat, so they had to migrate. Uh, 
And several of them, they went all over the place, but a, a particular group called the Rama Elders came to our planetary system. And this may sound like so far out to you guys. Not to us, I'm but speaking to some from, people. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking from experience here. Um, they started to communicate with this young man and told this young man that they would show up at a particular day in a particular place south of Lima, Peru, which is the capital, in a, 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 in a valley, a desert, you know, inhospitable valley called mm -hmm. Chilca. And in Chilca, they showed up, and uh, over time, he started to receive more and more messages from them and, uh, and was told to bring certain close friends of his to these encounters and uh, and so i've been to several of them including two international gatherings in which the rama elders specifically stated that we should invite journalists from all over the world to come to chilka and film the uh the appearance of not only the scout craft but the mothership in the skies and lo and behold it happened my friends and i i was standing there on the ground in two occasions surrounded by international journalists that captured this on film i have a, a video here and and it, it was shown on Univision, which is the Spanish channel here in the United States. And since then, uh, Sixto Paswells was has been forbidden to come to the United States. And the immigration department set up a situation where when last time I had invited him, which was uh, right after the harmonic convergence in 1987, to come to Atlanta, uh, right after that, he was framed and... Uh, uh, accused of uh, illegal, um, uh, you know, money laundering, which was yes, and he was threatened with incarceration if he didn't leave, and so he was uh, banned from the United States right after that video came out. Um, so these encounters with the Rama elders. Uh, were very similar. To, they were very similar to what I experienced at age ten, except that instead of the uh, Merlin-looking uh, wizened, uh, uh, you know, elders in shining robes, these looked more like uh, clean-cut angels. <laughs> they, you know, they had like baby skin, and they they did not have long hair, or, and they were not elderly. Uh, they were, uh, you know, a projection of uh, of the idealized Greek or Roman uh, god. So when, in, in a sense. I'm sorry? I, I wonder if that's, uh, I wonder if that's something, I often wonder when people, you know, they describe all these different entities differently. I wonder if that's more something inside ourselves that we see what we need to see at that time, you know, like maybe when you're younger seeing a an elderly looking, you know, older guy makes you feel more comfortable. Well, yeah, anyone who's had near-death experiences or has been to the various bardos that await us after our bodily uh, transition uh, will attest to the fact that we are first welcomed by those that 
we feel most comforted by. And uh, eventually, slowly are introduced to the fact that uh, everything is a projection of our own uh, level of spiritual maturation. And uh, eventually, we are going to be comfortable with just merging and dissolving into the light. Uh, and But until that, there are steps. And those steps are always uh, replete of beings and family members and other expressions of one's highest aspiration of what spiritual reality is like and love is like until one is able to, you know, take the training wheels off and uh, ride a unicycle and then just uh, levitate eventually. <laughs> so so going back to that, that encounter, when, when was that again, that encounter? Oh, the uh, one with the Rama mission? Yeah, the one that was vi- sort of videotaped. and. Yeah, well, th- that was in, let's see. Like the mid-80s? We're talking, the, the, yeah, it was uh, the first one that uh, brought the journalists to Peru was, I believe, in, I wasn't at that one. That was in 83. The one I'm talking about was in 85, as a matter of fact. Yeah, so. And that. And eighty, excuse me, eighty four and eighty five. Those right. were the two that I was present at. Huh. And did that right. cause a lot of waves in Peru? Like, did that uh, create a bit of a, a storm there? I mean, it must have made some headlines on it. I mean, I don't. We probably it made headlines everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. See, it, it was prompted by these by JJ Benitez, who was a who was a, a journalist from Spain, who had uh, come down on a lead story to interview Sixto. He was sent by the newspaper that he worked with in Spain. Oh, I think, and uh, I think that's one of Jota, our, Jota Benitez, yeah. Yeah. Red pill junkie. One of our, uh, contributors here. I think that's his favorite, uh, journalist from back then. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, sorry, go, yeah. Go ahead. He, he did. He did a. He did a wonderful job in being able to uh, make credible his encounter with the Rama elders in the Chilca Desert when he went down to Peru, and as a result of that, um, the Rama guides committed tasked Sixto to contact J.J. Benitez again and tell him that he wanted to bring his colleagues down. So it started only as a group of Spanish journalists, but all of a sudden, every Spanish-speaking journalist on planet got wind of it, and they all showed up, including uh, journalists from Univision in, in Miami, you know? And so that's how that happened. And um, so... so it's in the Rama mission in my experience, other than the Eugene Siragusa group out of Italy, is the only contactee group that has scheduled uh, encounters. Right. We receive we receive psychographic communication ahead of time. We're told the place, we're told the time, we're told the people that are supposed to be there, and bing, you show up, and boom, there they are. And and I don't know any other contactee mission that uh, that is afforded that you know, that opportunity.
And then, so what's what's been going on? When did it dissolve, or did it dissolve, or what's up with Rama these days? Yeah, well, let me go back to answering your question about the Peruvian government and how they responded to it. Right, this. yeah, yeah. They, at the time, the APRA party was in power, and they invited Sixto Paswells to give a talk to all the parliamentarians, to the entire Congress, wow. and to the Senate about his contact experiences. And, you know, we have a different approach to these things. Given the fact that they have been talked about, they're in our creation stories, in our myths of origin, from pre-Inca peoples to the present, we understand that our beings from stars, like all of our indigenous cultures around the world, have been an integral part of the evolution of life on this planet. So we have this already in our in our neurogenetic makeup, uh, even if you're mixed blood, like I am. So we, we it, it, to us, it's natural. And even and the leaders the, in government in Peru are fascinated by the subject, hmm. and so you know there's no suppression. They don't send jet fighters out to interfere with the craft. For well, <laughs> even now, even nowadays, I think South America is leading sort of leading the way in, in accepting uh, you know the UFO reality and actually creating pseudo governmental organizations to study it. Exactly. Well, yeah, like the EPI, the International Planetary Relations Institute, is part of the Astronomical Society of Peru. <laughs> so they, you know, they have a con they they have a a, a contactee a, a specialized contactee unit within the, uh, the the main observatory of the Astronomical Society of Peru uh, on the highest point of lima so it's 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 pretty awesome yeah that's that's a great uh, example right there <laughs> that's so far away from where we are that's like that's like, a fucking ufo landing pad dude just up the road <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's ridiculed yeah, it, by the it, government it, yeah uh, it, it, i mean it's just so obvious come on it, if you have Two neurons that are firing together, you know, you should be able to entertain the possibility of life beyond Earth, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we're just stuck in a lot of dogma here, that's all. It's all control issues. Yeah. So, I wanted to also ask, uh, before we run out of time here, about the uh, similarities between some of the traditions like when i was reading your book it really reminded me a lot of the native uh medicine sort of medicine men woman traditions and that type of thing is there is that is that going is was that you putting all that together in your pachacuti mesa or was that something that is just in uh naturally uh there's these these parallels between native cultures across the world um there are some core principles and practices that shamanic small-scale tribal societies share that are ubiquitous on planet yet they're not given they're not spoken about they are not articulated and what my primary mentor Don Celso Rojas Palomino from Salas Chiclayo who I studied with from 69 to his passing in 82 uh, at least two to three months every year, um, 
he bequeathed me with carrying on this lineage and basically sanctioned me to bring the the practice of Wachuma or San Pedro uh, uh, ritual shamanism to the northern regions, to the developed world, because he said the only way uh, our stupid uh, people here in Peru are going to stop thinking that these things are superstitious and because we know the curanderos and curanderas were persecuted by the law. It was a crime to practice there because it was a threat to the medical establishment. They were having more success in mesadas than they were in hospitals in many cases because it's not just the use of the santero. They, these people are master herbalists, bone setters, midwives. They, they have a, 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 an ethnobotanical botanical, um, you know, uh, repertoire that uh, would make any, uh, you know, biochemist envious in a modern pharmaceutical industry, you know. So we have this wealth of medical knowledge that um, is just practiced. It's never been really cataloged and and analyzed and, and organized. And a lot of it is transmitted in story and in parable and in metaphor. So it's very difficult to find a language that will make sense to a person that's not born in that cultural milieu. And because of my uh, university studies in the United States and my ability with the English language and the credibility of having college degrees at mm-hmm. relatively well-known universities. Celso was no fool. He said, this is the perfect guy. I want him to take the the medicine there to put, put his words on it and then show the gringos uh, to value it, bring the gringos back to Peru. And when our own people see the gringos practicing it with heart and with reverence and with respect, they themselves are going to realize that they should do it themselves. And lo and behold, he was right. And that's why we see this huge resurgence of, uh, of shamanic practice, especially, you know, the, the arts of Peru being uh, adopted by so many Westerners here and in Europe. And so the Pachacuti Mesa uh, Cosmovision is something that I originated that blends the southeastern highland uh, uh, shamanic priesthood known as the Pacocura or the Path of Payment with the northern coastal healing arts known as Huachuma Curanderismo. Mm. I brought both of these traditions together and integrated them into the use of this ritual altar. And then because of having major in psychology and minor in comparative religions and studied all sorts of other things, um, I managed to realize that there was a common language in the in an interdisciplinary field, uh, you know, n- known as as clinical parapsychology, that I had the great honor of uh, of uh, being part of when I was a student at Duke in the seventies, uh, and uh, then form- after that we developed with Bill Rold, the person who coined the term poltergeist, with Raymond Moody, Mike oh, yeah. Aaron, Stan- Stanley Krippner was part of that group too. Wow, that we was. 
that, that was that when was you that, moved it, to the states there, and that's when I moved to the states. So you know, I was uh, I, I was involved in all of that and learning the language that was spoken by these academicians that were talking about the same phenomena and uh, and psi both ESP and PK experiences that shamanism was doing for millennia. So I integrated all of this, and that's why you see some of the language in the book uh, that uh, appeals to the Western uh, person, you know? And and that's the best way I can put it. So did you ever... uh, Stanley talked a lot about uh, a shaman named Rolling Thunder. Did Did you ever meet him? Unfortunately, did not meet Rolling Thunder in in the flesh. Yet he did. I did have two remarkable visitations by him in dream time. And um, you know, Stanley uh, over the years, of course, shared a lot of his stories, especially when he was taken to the Menninger Foundation with uh, uh, Swami Rama and the blue people's minds there. And, uh, yeah, Stanley has a book out, uh, the recent, uh, his most recent book on rolling thunder. It's a wonderful book. And, uh, like rolling thunder, there have been, uh, very unassuming, uh, master healers that, um, were able to overcome, the attempted genocide of their peoples by the white person, by yeah. the Eurocent, and and still were were open to sharing those ways with non-native peoples, and uh, and Rolling Thunder was one of those beautiful souls. I, I wanted to say, uh, so here you are having a near-death experience. You've had multiple near-death experiences, and then you end up in, next to the office of Raymond Moody, who was actually you know brought, brought that to the to our mainstream culture. So, what was that like? Did like did he did he l- learn from you about that, or did you? I mean, that, that just must have been kind of a crazy synchronicity. Yeah, Ray and I go back a long, long time. It was uh, once I returned. Uh, after I completed my obligations with the Organization of American States down in Peru, um, because of uh, needing to care for my daughter, you know, I was raising her by myself as a single parent, I chose to return to the United States to earn my right livelihood here and uh, obtain a position at, at the same place I did my master's at, at West Georgia State University. And it, and because I knew all the people there from the early days, and and it just so happened that I shared an office with Raymond Moody and with uh, Bill Roll, you know, uh, in the psych department there, which was started by Abraham Maslow, by the way, from Brandeis, and in, in this in 1969, and so um, yeah, and I was in the midst of the worst two years of not knowing whether I was dead or alive because of the amount of bizarre occurrences that were happening all all around me. And there are too much to enumerate right now. Several of them are talked about in the book, yet there's so much more. That, as a matter of fact, the book is a sanitized version. <laughs> I, 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 got the, I got the feeling that, that was the case. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I'm, I'm here. I, I'm walking between worlds, you know, uh, literally, 
literally. And boom, Raymond Moody shows up. And I said, oh, for God's sake, I must be dead. The, the gods have been so generous with me. They put in, in my office an expert in near-death experience. I'm going to ask them whether I'm dead or alive. And that didn't help. You know? <laughs> As a matter of fact, Raymond said yes to both things. <laughs> yeah, you're dead. Yes, you're alive. You know, let's do something fun. <laughs> so that, that's in a nutshell. Um, and then we developed, of course, uh, and still have a very close, intimate relationship. He's hilarious. He's brilliant, and he's hilarious. Those of you that know Raymond would concur. So, uh, st- sticking on the, the NDE topic, uh, somebody in the chat room there, Joe Joker, wants to hear about a weird experience. So, how about, how about you talk about one of your near-death experiences, maybe that one in the, uh, off, the, uh, off the road in the car? Oof. Every time I share this, I kind of have to go back into it. So, but this this format that you guys have is very loose and personable. So, um, uh, so yeah, I was um, it was right before I returned to the states um, and and took the position at the psych department and shared that office with Raymond Moody that I was in a very bad way. Uh, I had to leave my year-and-a-half daughter in the United States with a very ill mother, psychologically ill mother, and um, found myself in a, in a very depressing situation back in Peru. Um, my mentor had uh, recently passed, uh, Don Celso. I had been tasked with a huge responsibility. Um, I was weak in soul and in spirit and uh, working very hard, uh, yet, you know, had a psychotherapy mm-hmm. practice and was working for the Petro Peru, Peru's petroleum company and substance abuse prevention, all the while was a raving alcoholic and 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 and, and and a drug user, and so I was living this double life, mm. and um, and it, it was tearing apart. And uh, and so, uh, as a as one last ditch attempt, you know, I took my brother's car off uh, out for a spin during the curfew because there was a military coup, uh, curfew there due to the Shining Path terrorist group at the time. So it was illegal to go out at night, but I took it out anyway. And I was, uh, you know, quite inebriated and uh, was driving very rapidly down the coast, coastal uh, uh, road of, of Lima called La Costa Verde and uh, accelerated and was crying, uh, you know, hysterically and took my hands off the wheel and told creator, if you exist, if there's any, uh, any reality to you, uh, do something, give me some signs because I'm done. You know, I don't want to be around here anymore. And, uh, just, I was 33 years old at the time and I, I, and just floored it, and the car started driving itself. And everywhere it was going, the the, the street lights would extinguish themselves. So I'd pass by the, the lights, and boom, 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 until the entire 
coastal area of Peru was entirely blacked out, and I kid you not, I swerved up and started to climb up back because it's like the cliffs in in, in Big Sur and in, in, in Southern Cal- in, in California. Mm-hmm. That's how the 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 coast of Peru, except that it's desert. There's not much trees, and started climbing up, 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 and went to the uh, highest point of the road and continued to floor it, hands off the wheel, the car driving itself. My brother that I inherited the car from had just died of cancer. And I just want to drop that little piece in there. And uh, all of a sudden I see this roadblock saying, peligro, no cruce, precipicio, danger, no cross, uh, precipice. And there was this barricade there, and I just floored it, and that's the last thing I remember. And it led over the cliff down back to the to the road down below, which was about a 250-foot drop and um, or more. And then all of a sudden, I, w- I wake up, and the car is completely totaled, crashed. I'm bleeding from my forehead. Uh, I had hit the uh, the steering wheel, and there was blood everywhere on the windshield. Um, and I was limp, and I I was in this brightly illuminated, uh, typical Peruvian neighborhood. Uh, yet uh, it was like nighttime, but there was almost it was like a soccer stadium with floodlights. And I could hear this woman up in the in the window of one of the houses saying, "Está muerto, está mu- He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. Uh, policia, policia, police, police. He's dead. He's dead. He's dead." And then I heard the uh, the, the voices of these little children, and uh, uh, you know, like playing in the street. And I could uh, barely. You know, regained some sort of conscious. I remember opening my eyes and looking over the the steering wheel and seeing through the cracked window these children, little girls, little boys. The the oldest must have been eight years old. They were tossing this big light beach ball, this colorful beach ball around, and there were all these these beautiful manicured little. Uh, you know, plots of, of grass and flowers like they typically have in the Lima neighborhoods and, uh, you know, stuccoed uh, painting, painted homes. And then all of a sudden, I get this telepathic communication to sit up and and open the door and go outside of the car. And I do that, and at a distance, I see this... Uh, <laughs> This dude walking toward me, and for a Peruvian, he and he was tall, you know, over six foot, slick black, greased down hair, all dressed in black with shades on, with an an STP, you know, the race oil mm-hmm. <laughs> emblem on his on his jacket, and he looked like you know a Peru a, a Lima James Dean dude. And he was walking toward me, and he was saying, uh, "Welcome. I'm here to uh, to ask you some questions in preparation for your passing." And I, immediately, I started to freeze up and and become totally, uh, uh, you know, paralyzed. I said, "Oh, this is it. I really am on the other side now." And uh, 
and my lack of of trust in 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 the ultimate crown of being and God, goddess, whatever you want to call it, uh, has put me in this situation. The minute I start to have these negative thoughts, the children stopped to laugh, to giggle, to play, and they became very somber. And I realized that, and the light started to dim in the streets also. Mm. And I realized that the outside world was basically a result of my inner world, of how I was feeling. And so just just grasping that, I realized that this is an opportunity to create my own my own death experience, my own reality, what I'm going to choose to learn from beyond the earth plane. And at that moment, this uh, avatar, this STP avatar, uh, got very close to me and started to transmit some telepathic questions to me regarding the nature of the universe. That's the best way I could say it. And he asked me a series of questions of how I understood, uh, you know, the human soul to be and what its purpose was, uh, what I considered the most virtuous of human actions, what I considered the most vile of human actions. The list goes on. Did it feel like a test at all or? Oh, most definitely. Okay. It felt like I was I was being given the GRE okay. for a major, or, or taking the medical the medical board. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it, it it felt very much like my final uh, oral exam at West Georgia State University for my master's. As a matter of fact, uh, although there it was it was a little looser. Uh, and then after a while, he, he just indicated telepathically for me to get back into the car and uh, close my eyes and to begin to breathe. And so I start to breathe, and then I start to hyperventilate and breathe, 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 and all of a sudden, boom, I felt the weight of the world on me, and I felt every cell in my body aching, screaming with pain. You know, I had, I, I was beyond my body in this experience of encounter. And once I came back in my body, I realized what an accident I had had and how beat up I was. Wow. Yet, yet I, you know, once I went through that hyperventilation, boom, I stopped breathing and my body got very, very cold. And I could still hear everything that was going on. And at that point, these police, excuse me, at that point, these, these uh, thugs really came came in and took my wallet, took my watch. I, I've never wear a watch since then. Took everything from the car so there was no identification. Uh, and, and in those days, they didn't have, you know, the internet to check license plates and all of that. So uh, they stole everything. I was uh, without identification. The police came. They picked me up. They pulled me out of the car. They flopped me in the back of their pickup truck put a sheet over me and drove me to the police station. And I, they put me in a corner in a room there and I could hear them talking and saying, who is this uh, poor idiot who, you know, uh, you know, is dead here. What are we going to do? How are we going to find out? Who do we call? And all of a sudden I felt myself, you know, the warmth coming back into my body, my heartbeat uh, being restored. And I, 
took this huge deep breath and boom, I was back. And I sat up and the sheet fell off of me and the policeman became very, very surprised, you can imagine. Uh, and uh, and there, there was a lot that followed that experience. Um, yet it took me a while, Darren uh, uh, and Graham, to, to come to peace with the fact that um, it was okay to not know whether I was dead or alive, that I still had to get up in the morning and and do my best to uh, navigate the world in a loving way and uh, earn right livelihood to support my daughter. And, and during that li- that near-death experience, I was also given the scenario of what it would look like for me to be on the other side, which I really was looking forward to. But then I saw the suffering of my parents. They had just lost their first son. And I saw my, my daughter growing up without me and the life that she would have. And I chose to come back for them uh, instead of continue. And so at that point, I realized that, you know, I'm here now. Where else can I go? Mm. Uh, Forti in mind in the in the chat room was asking about negative NDE experiences, and then after hearing that, would you would you consider yours a positive one? And and I guess on the other side of that, have you heard of any negative ones? Do people talk about uh, negative like the a more sinister NDE, or is most of them just going towards the light type thing? There's a whole range of experiences, right. and it depends on how well prepared you are for the passage. Huh. That's the bottom line. You know, if, if, if you're prepared for the passage, you're not going to be tested as much. Hmm. And all the wrathful deities, all of the, quotes, negative, unquotes, uh, you know, demonic uh, or archetypal beings uh, are are just uh, waiting to be loved. If you do not try to fight them and just embrace them, they'll shapeshift. It's just like anybody who's uh, communed with any plant relatives and they have a bum trip or those in the, that grew up in the 60s and had bad acid trips and you start seeing your tripping partner turn into Satan, into the adversary. <laughs> if you're, if, you know, and grow tentacles and stuff, if you just sit with it and allow those tentacles to become flowing Godiva-like locks, you end up making love to the, dem- to the demon, right? So a lot of it comes back to your perception again, right? It, it all, it, that's yeah. been my experience. <laughs> so I, I do have one more question before we run out of time here uh, from Forti in Mind in the chat room. And, and it's then a, I always get the last question. Yeah, that's true, Darren. Yes, you do. <laughs> Darren, Darren's in control here. He likes the control. Um, <laughs> Someone so, has to be. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Par- parapsychology. Like I, I, it'd be interesting to get your take on how it's changed over the last uh, couple decades or whatever. But for T and Mind's question is, do you think that parapsychology will ever be taught again at an accredited university? Um. Well, it is taught at accredited universities, you know. 
the, you know, the, the California Institute of Integral Studies. As a matter of fact, the psychology department at the State University of West Georgia. West Georgia had the first parapsychology, uh, you know, curriculum there was. They, they were offering a master's degree in, in parapsychology. Um, yeah, the, it's not a matter of uh, teaching uh, parapsychology within an academic, a respected academic setting. It's a matter of doing what IONS does, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh. you know, it's uh, that's or what uh, what uh, Persinger is doing up at McGill University. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's it, it's about really bringing it into the world where it's going to make a difference, where it's going to help us. Right. We can study parapsychology all we want, yet if we do not, uh, you know, uh, make it a pragmatic, you know, available skill that uh, can be used for healing, for diagnosis, and for spiritual growth, um, it's just still going to remain on the fringe. That would be my answer to that. I think parapsychology is kind of help, or uh, sorry, uh, fields like quantum physics and that are kind of backdooring it to make it a little easier as well. Oh, certainly. I mean, there's no para in in psychology, and there's no supra in natural. <laughs> it's all this. It's you know, it's a vast continuum of possibilities that we're just tapping into, and the more we awake to uh, to the fact that uh, our greatest ally is our imagination, and learn how to discipline that imagination. Uh, uh, all the dormant potentials that once in a while show themselves uh, will become uh, available in a in, in a um, manageable form. Th- think of this alone, and this is the the phenomena of spontaneous combustion, in which people just vaporize and a little foot is left, right? That speaks of the most extraordinary power that is embodied at the cellular level, you know, at the quantum level. That is is the equivalent of of nuclear fusion, right? Hmm. Uh, not fission, but fusion. And it's we have the sun within us that when it goes haywire such as sometimes when there's excessive solar spot activity in our planetary sun, can create a wobble that is felt in all the telecommunication systems of this planet and result in blackouts on a massive scale. That same power is within our bodies, and it results in these spontaneous combustions. Mm. Harnessing, Harnessing that is the task of universal shamanism mm. is the task of of third millennial shamanism and that is at the core of everything that seems magical but is really a natural part of who we are as almost universalis wow well said and very very non-dogmatic too i love it <laughs> one thing i gotta get out there before uh, before we wrap it up is uh is uh, what's your take on uh, synchronicity? Is oh. um, <laughs> some, something we talk about on on almost every show? Is uh, so I'd like to ask what your take on synchronicity is, and maybe um, what you, what you think they may or may not mean, and and maybe some uh, one of the more meaningful ones you may have experienced. 
Hmm. Okay. An a-causal connecting principle, according to Jungian understanding of the uh, dynamic of the psychoid archetype, which is the bridge between spirit and matter. In other words, uh, an archetype, a symbol, an image, uh, can be brought into the flesh, made visible as a theophany as a revelation of the divine through synchronicity, through the coming together of certain coincidences that are with a capital C, yeah. divine, divine coincidences. Uh, the, the synchronicity we experienced at the beginning of the show, was you mentioning Stanley Krippner's name, who I just talked to the other day and who paid, has played such a pivotal role in my own uh, uh, you know, understanding of, of Psy and of uh, the shamanic world, um, is case in point. Before we even began to talk, you brought up Stanley's name. Yeah. Now, the skeptic would say, well, of course, I mean, here you are, he read your book, he, you know, he knows you're friends with Raymond Moody, you might as well just give it a shot and see if you know <laughs> Stanley. You know, that would be the skeptic, right? To me, it is a meaningful coincidence. Right. To me, it opened my heart to be able to dive in with the fullness of soul and trust into your own hearts. And that to me is at the core of what synchronicity is. Wow. Well said again. I'm glad Darren's been asking that. We've been getting some amazingly well-spoken answers on that. One day I'll string them all together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a great book, brother. Yeah. Well, we'd like to, to really thank you for, for taking the time to come on oh. the show, Oscar. We recommend all our listeners uh, pick up a copy of the book. Yeah. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to, to, to plug or any any shows or anything like that? Sure. Um, yeah, if, you, if you're interested in apprenticeship in the Pachacuti Mesa tradition of cross-cultural shamanism, please go to www.heartofthehealer, all one word, heartofthehealer, Dot org, and you will see a series of teachings and events there if you're interested in that. And the other thing is that I have my fondest dream is to have 144 book reviews of Lessons and Courage on Amazon.com. I can't get into why that number, but it's associated with Thoth, okay. with the thrice great Hermes Trismegistus, the Ibis <laughs> God. And, it's, it, it, and it, it, it's very meaningful to me. And I would like to get 144 book reviews. We have 55 so far. So if you buy a copy from Amazon.com, or even if you don't buy a copy, and just go on and, and put your review there, that would be greatly appreciated and you will be uh, nourishing and feeding the evolution of uh, of the good medicine that my mentor Don Celso Rojas Palomino bequeathed me to carry into the modern Western world. So thank you so much. Well, That's I know great. A, a lot of these, a lot of Americans could probably use a little karma. So 
Yeah, yeah. There's an easy way. <laughs> Speak, speaking of that, uh, Joe Joker in the chat room wants to say thanks uh, for sharing such a deep personal story, and she looks forward to reading your book. So I'm sure Thank she'll Thank you, Jojo. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. It's been an honor and a, a lot of blast. Yeah, that's been... Know you. That's great. It's been one of the fastest 90 minutes of my life, I think. And uh, we're going to link to... <laughs> We're going to link to your uh, your web, that website and, and your book and everything in the show notes so people can go there to click on it to get direct access to it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, uh, yeah, and here we go. Can I do a prayer in Quechua to end? Yes, please. Haili wilka hanak pachamanta saiwa tiyayakui teksemuyok hatung kaipang Pachakamak nyokakmi sonkoiti tupakui kausaipi kawakui. Kausai niyok, munay niyok, kanchay niyok. Amuray ko ina, nokay ko kanchay parunakuna, pachamamak churinkuna, ama ina sonko tikak funtunintak apumuy runakunak. Haili, haili. Hayurunakuna aknana muyok kasi kausai. Loosely translated, this Ketra invocation means something like praises and victory to the sacred shaft of light from the heavens. Welcome, great power of the universe. World creator, meet yourself in my heart. See yourself in my life. With life, with love, and with light did we come here. We are people of the light and children of the earth. Please bring the blossoming of the flower of the heart to humankind. Praises and victory. Praises and victory to all our relations within our ceremonial circle of peace. And that we say at the beginning of each day in the high Andes. Beautiful. Yeah, that was great. That's a perfect, uh, perfect way to wrap up, I think. Thank you so much, Oscar. I'll see you guys in the dream time. All right, buddy. Okay, Oscar, have a great, uh, great weekend. <laughs> yeah. You, you okay. guys too. Looking forward to hearing you. All right. Okay, bye-bye. Welcome back to the Grey America show. See, you always say that the same. You always make fun of me for saying the same. I don't thing. say it the same. You say it the I same. I just said every it differently. Time. I didn't even no. say the this time. So, <laughs> welcome back to Grey America show. <laughs> what, I just proved you wrong right there. What me laugh? Uh, anyways, we want to thank Oscar, uh, Don Oscar. Should I say the Don every time? I don't think so. No, I think you can call him Oscar now.
Oscar Miral Casada, and that was a fascinating chat. I loved it. He was uh, he was pretty good, pretty funny. Yeah, I like the yeah. prayer at the end there. Good times. Yeah, and he's got that uh, the Healer of the Heart Alliance, the Thoth, and I love how he was uh, chatting with our previous guest. Kripner? Yeah, Kripner. Crip seems to get around, eh? and those guys, and yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Very non-dogmatic. I love all that uh, open-minded, uh, putting it all together, right, with all the common principles. Yeah, yeah, and big thanks to him for telling us some some pretty personal stories and, and stuff like that on the air as well, so that was... Uh... That was nice of him. I know it hit home with a few people in the chat room and probably a few people listening on the podcast. So, yeah, definitely. so big thanks to Oscar for coming on the show. We'll link to his books and, and everything else in the show notes as usual. And uh, of course, uh, we're off for a week or so, a week and a half. We don't even know who our next guest is. So there's that. There's that. Our next step, we got uh, plenty in the can. We've got uh, our next releases will be, we'll come out with. Regular. Yeah, we'll be a dual episode with the graphic novel and the web web comic, Emmy Bittner and Alex Teplish. Yep. And then after that, we'll probably come out with the talk with uh, Whirlaman. Yeah. I think he's the op-ed writer or something like that. Yeah. Socialist, kind of. Yeah, socialist, kind of. Not and not a global warming enthusiast. <laughs> And yeah, and then after that, I can't remember. There's a few more in the can for sure. Uh, that one great year, that was a real fun one too. Yeah, that was good. That'll be a good one. That's coming out soon. Um, so check out the Money Bomb. Help us out. Give us a pat on the back. America.ca slash Money Bomb. Spam the shit out of Graham. Uh, check out the live feed. Uh, there's nothing on there now, but. Maybe I should spell my name since you can't pronounce it. So Graham. G-R-A-H-A-M at GrahamAmerica.com. How should I say it? Graham. Graham? <laughs> no, don't. Just stick to your Graham. Graham? Yeah, it doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't. It's no, Graham. No. Dime bag. You don't have to say it whiny like that. Graham. Graham. <sighs> Graham. Graham. Right on, buddy. Thanks. Yeah. Right and then twit. Twit Darren at Gramerica. Twit. twit. At Gramerica on Twitter. Check out the Facebook page and review the show. Please review the show. And, uh, yeah, and I think that's about it. You'll find everything in the show notes, uh, the music you heard, all the stuff we talked about. And, uh, yeah, we'll be on holidays. The episodes will be times released, time released. So you guys won't miss a thing, but, uh, and we'll check back in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Have a good trip, buddy. Will do. The new five song EP from the court featuring the song Got it.
Song EP from the courts coming soon for download.